Amazon will make you come to work in the middle of a blizzard. They will make you work because they value profits over people, and they don't care. The funny machine can't stop for even one second. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. That was a clip from Building Bridges Radio's report from a rally for Amazon workers in New York City last month. It's a struggle because on the one hand, it's amazing to see workers exercising the leverage they have within the labor market right now. But at the same time, it's very individualized, it's very fleeting, and it doesn't necessarily make us more powerful in the long run. On the Belabored podcast, a discussion on the so-called great resignation, striketober, and other developments in the labor movement in the pandemic era. Up next we take you to the ground level of the American labor movement with four brief excerpts from podcasts that either feature a guest from a local union or podcasts produced by local unions. If we're going to have those conversations and talking about uh, helping communities that have been devastated and affected by not only the war on drugs, but the economic war on working people, then we have to make sure that worker standards are part of any type of cannabis legislation. UFCW Local 152 Assistant Director of Organizing, Hugh Giordano, talks with host Ed Flash Ferentz on America's Workforce Radio podcast. The challenges we have in front of us started with a 40-day strike. We come back to a 10-week COVID leave. Come back from that to a semiconductor shortage. And there are a whole lot more challenges facing the leaders and members of UAW Local 2209 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We find out more from the Locals podcast, All Trucked Up. The district came out with a mobile application with a QR code on there. Did the members find that useful, you believe? The young people actually, I think, did real well with that. Some of us antiques would prefer the old way. Um, On the 141 report, machinist union leaders try out different communication tools to build membership participation. The construction industry has one of the highest rates of suicide, but it really should be viewed no different as, oh, I broke my leg, I'm going to go get a cast. Oh, I'm having a mental health issue. I'm going to go talk to a doctor. The construction industry has one of the highest rates of suicide of any occupation. Yet the stigma of admitting mental health issues keeps many from getting the help they need. Breaking Ground, the podcast from Operating Engineers Local 3, explores the issue. It's very easy to sit there saying the schools are my enemy if you don't have to be responsible for actually making tough decisions. The AFT Union Talk podcast explores how the right wing has used critical race theory and the pandemic to drive a wedge between parents and teachers and how to rehabilitate that relationship. Racism in our politics and in our policymaking is why all of us can have nice things. Nice things like childcare, a good education for your kids, a job that treats you with respect. That's Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone. And we'll hear more from her on the Heartland Labor Forum. I, I really do think that the labor movement should listen to porn workers because they've been navigating the conditions that the labor movement is now scrambling to respond to. Heather Berg, 
talks about sex, labor, and late capitalism on the Reinventing Solidarity podcast. It shouldn't be an either-or thing, too. It shouldn't just be like, oh, well, uh, you don't like crypto, so you like banks, you suck. It's like, no, no, no. Like, because this stuff isn't regulated, like, they're just doing, like, insane inside trading. The Art and Labor podcast tackles NFTs, DAOs, cryptocurrency, and, I think, teleology as well. She chained herself to the front of the building. So she had a chain that was donated by the uh, Painters and Dockers Union, but she had to go buy the locks herself. From the On The Job podcast, we find out about the historic Australian female labor activist who chained herself to a building in downtown Melbourne in 1969. That's all ahead. Today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm Chris Garlock, and before we get the show rolling, I just want to remind you that what you're about to hear are brief excerpts from shows in the network. Our hope is that they'll spark your curiosity and prompt you to search out the original shows. You'll find them all on our website at laborradionetwork.org, and we've also got links in the show notes for this podcast. All right, here's the show. We're building Bridget with Mimi Rosenberg and Kim Nash. Now, signs in hand, earmuffs and gloves, we're off to the Amazon Workers Rally, just steps away from Broadway shows shut down by spiking COVID. There, workers are gathering to demand Amazon recognize the union being organized by the Amazon Labor Union, ALU and that it's roughly 750,000 U.S. workers be free from Amazon's terror tactics to stop their unionizing. Chuck Charles Jenkins, president of the New York chapter of the Coalition of Black Trade Unions, what brings you to Times Square? A year to fight back union, the right to organize. Finally, this here message is riveting across the country. We have legislation, the PRO Act, that at least says workers have a right to form a union. Far too often, folks came to work and worked from sunup to sundown with very little pay for their labor. And we're here to stand with workers, particularly the Amazon workers. I'm Justine Medina. I work, uh, I'm an Amazon worker at JFK 8, Staten Island. Um, I got a job there in September. Uh, honestly, like one of the most inspiring and powerful experiences of my life. The warehouse working conditions are hellish. When you're a full-time worker there, you're on your feet. Even normal days, you're on your feet 10 hours a day. You're not allowed to sit down. If you go to the bathroom for too long, if you're with your station for five minutes, then you can get in trouble for not being there. And if you get trouble enough, that you're fired. You're fired and fired there by a computer, by the way, basically most of the time. So it's just these creepy automated some that are just basically like tracking your every move. Like you can go all day. In my in my job, I'm a I'm a counter. I count things literally all day. I could go all day without talking to another person. It is like solitary confinement. It's very unsafe in there. There are workplace injuries every day. I've met people who gotten broken bones at the job. Amazon won't send the pulp. They 
They do not care when people die at work. Amazon will make you come to work in the middle of a blizzard when you can't see out the front of your car window when everyone else is closed, and they will make you work because they value profits over people, and they don't care. The money machine can't stop for even one second. And we've known about this for years, and people have been dying for years. We want better pay. We want better job security. We want safer working conditions, most of all. And I tell everybody, like, you know, I'd love to get all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if what we're doing saves even one life, then it was all worth it. Uh, the fight is just getting started. So, uh, you know, we'll be out doing more rallies just like this. I hope to see you all there, too. Thank you. For Building Bridges from Times Square, I'm Ken Nash. And I'm Mimi Rosenberg saying, Workers of the World Unite, you have nothing to lose but your chain and world to win. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hello, everyone. We wanted to do a sort of year-end show to look over this stuff because suddenly this was the year, again, that people discovered the workplace. We have some of our favorite labor commentators here with us. Uh, Rebecca Collins-Given is Associate Professor of Labor Studies and Employment Relations in the School of Management and Labor Relations at Rutgers. And she has published widely on employment relations in healthcare, education, comparative welfare states, and labor studies. She is president of Rutgers AAUP-AFT. And Connor Lewis is a writer and editor of the labor publication Strike Wave with bylines and publications like The Progressive, In These Times, The Baffler, and The Nation. We should start with a reality check. The media has been abuzz with these two terms that attempt to capture the current labor zeitgeist. And first, there was Striketober, which has now it's become Strikesgiving and various other iterations. <laughs> and then there was the Great Resignation, um, which happened simultaneously. What do we get wrong in describing recent trends in worker activism? Rebecca, I will throw this to you. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I think when we think about, let's say, Striketober bleeding into wherever we are now, Strike Moss, I think the way to contextualize is that the numbers aren't huge, but they're significant. And the significance is private sector workers going on strike. These strikes are very small compared to especially the 2018 teachers strikes. And it's um, a fraction of the size. But private sector workers going on strike is a big deal. Private sector workers rejecting tentative agreements that their union leadership negotiated is a big deal. And so they're significant, even if they're not necessarily numerically significant. I agree entirely that you know, as as far as the wave of strikes, it's a little bit difficult to figure out exactly what the extent of it, just because actually tracking strikes, figuring out what's happening is difficult. But there are a couple of things that I do think are important. And Rebecca mentioned one that I think is incredibly important is that there's actually been an incredibly low number of public sector strikes compared to just how it normally trends year to year. And a an abnormally high number of large private sector strikes. I think the last I checked, which was a couple of months ago, it was the most large private sector strike since 2012, which is certainly an uptick. I think it's both, it is and it isn't what it's being billed as. And I think that really the important part is exactly what Rebecca said. Even if the absolute numbers aren't there, the demands are different. 
they're actually going on the offensive, which we've seen more recently from like the Chicago Teachers Union, from UTLA, from public sector workers, especially teachers, and to some extent in the private sector from nurses. But you really haven't seen that from manufacturing workers who have been it locked in a cycle of concessionary bargaining for decades now. And that, I think, is incredibly notable. And especially the tension between, I think, you get, on the one hand, these kind of union accounts tweeting striketober, but when push comes to shove, they're still going to engage in the same kind of bargaining patterns that they have historically. And the problem is they raised expectations and then they weren't quite ready to actually deliver on them. And there's been a little bit of tension between what the rank and file expects and what union leadership is necessarily inclined to do. All right. So moving on to our other buzzword, the Great Resignation. So to the extent that the Great Resignation is actually a thing, how does this affect organizing? I think that depending on the context, and it really does depend on the context, it can, to some degree, strengthen external organizing. Sorry, buzzword. External organizing being organizing new uh, unions. And I've actually had some discussions with organizing campaigns over the past year or so where without even prompting, the the workers bring up, well, what are they going to do? They can't even fill the vacancies we've got now. What are they going to do to us? And so in a sense, it really does embolden workers in the face of really the boss's main threat for workers organizing, which is you're going to get fired, you're going to get retaliated against. Workers know quite realistically, that they're not going to, they can't do anything. So I think on that end, it is to some degree helpful, but I think with this very kind of like labor market and churn and even higher than normal turnover, depending on the workplace, it can make it very difficult to actually build the kind of kind of committee, the kind of majority that you need to actually win a union. It's a struggle because on the one hand, it's amazing to see workers exercising the leverage they have within the labor market right now. But at the same time, It's very individualized, it's very fleeting, and it doesn't necessarily make us more powerful in the long run. And so the question that I haven't been able to figure out is how do we actually turn this into something that makes us more powerful when the labor market starts to settle? Thank you so much, Becky and Connor. This has been great. And yeah, thanks to everybody for coming. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America. It's been several months since we checked in with this guy. Hugh Giordano is his name, and he is Assistant Director of Organizing. For the food and commercial workers, I'm talking about local 152. I know a lot of states are passing laws for uh, recreational marijuana. Ohio is in that category, too, and I know they want to try to expand that. Um, You're right in the middle of it. So, Hugh, what's the story? You're absolutely right. There's a lot of states that are moving to legalize an adult use market, also expanding their medical market like Ohio is doing. 
mm-hmm. with conversation of legalization as well. And part of those conversations with us are always about workers' rights. If you're going to create a new industry, and cannabis is based on, if you uh, look at why legalization is happening, is based on social justice, economic justice, and social equity, right? They're talking about how the war on drugs have, has affected working and poor people, predominantly people of color. And if we're going to have those conversations and talking about uh, helping communities that have been devastated and affected by not only the war on drugs, but just the economic war on working people, then we have to make sure that worker standards are part of any type of cannabis legislation. And fortunately for the UFCW, we have been very successful as of yet in working uh, state politicians and governors to pass labor peace requirements, just like the casinos have had in regulations that have been passed on the state level. We thought cannabis should be treated the same way. And fortunately for us, we've been able to pass labor peace agreement requirements in New Jersey, in New York, in Connecticut. Even Virginia has labor peace in their legal market. And on top of that, we're working on other states that are looking to go into the adult use market. And we got project labor agreement language into these laws as well so that the building trades, such as the iron workers, carpenters, the IBEW, the steam fitters, because these places are massive, 100,000 plus square foot cultivation facilities. So Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of opportunity here for jobs from shovel to sale in cannabis. And I think that as anybody that's AFL-CIO affiliated, this should be a main topic for us to work together and to continue the fight. I think it's great that we're able to do these things with cannabis and then to also show examples of how this type of legislation would help workers on a national level. So it gives us more of a robust argument to support the PRO Act because of cannabis. Who would ever think that, right? Hugh, I really enjoy having a conversation with you. It's long overdue. Let's do this again and uh, keep up the fight. Oh, 100%. Thank you so much, and thank you for doing what you do, too. Much appreciated, my brother. Hugh Giordano, Assistant Director of Organizing, Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW Local 152.org. That's it for another edition of America's Workforce. All of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. When the union's inspiration through the work is black shaman, there can be no power. All right, welcome 2209. We are here today uh, with Angie, Benetta, Nelson Rodriguez, Jail Belt, and Josh Olson, Dave Wise, and our special guests, Rich the Turnout and Holly Murphy. So we got New Year's res- resolutions coming up. So we wanted to talk about what goals you guys had set for this year, what goals you guys hit, and the big challenges you guys had going through the year. The challenges that we have in front of us mm-hmm. started with a 40-day strike. We kicked off local negotiations going to a 40-day strike. We come back to a 10-week COVID leave, mm-hmm. come back from that to a semiconductor shortage. We go through numerous runoff elections to get my shop committee put together. Then in the middle of negotiations, half my shop committee retires. So in the middle of negotiations, I have to start a whole new shop committee, whole new election, finally get that in, on board, start moving forward, and I got to run another election. So I'm not sure if I can face any more challenges than what's happened in the last two years. You've had a crazy Because it's insane. Years. 
Wow. I mean, this has never happened in the history of our organization. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I can hit any more challenges than what we've already hit in the last two years. So let's talk about your successes then, Rich. What do you feel you've done the best at over these past two years with all the challenges that you've faced? Well, I think the, one of the biggest challenges was to keep everybody focused on the real target. And the real target is our volume. And some of the things that I'm most proud of is how our membership handled what we did in Paint and Body with the tag relief and what we did with the straight eights. And I know it wasn't all popular. However, had we not did what we did, we would have never gotten the $10 million. Now, we wouldn't have got the $24 million that we got either because there had to be a trade-off there. And they made it clear to me we are not going to get that $10 million unless we do something which was a trade-off for us mm-hmm. to get it done. Because without it, it, we can't protect our volume. And without our volume, we got nothing. And seriously, our volume is key. Our volume is king. And the last thing we want to do is give that volume up to anybody else, to Mexico or Canada. So I'm proud of what we did there. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, Holly, did you start the year with any big goals that you wanted to accomplish throughout the year? Just getting the building redone because it had been beat up so bad during strike. We updated the restrooms, the kitchen, the pavilion. We've got all new audio, video. We have a podcast room that we're broadcasting in right now. The mural that we have in the the meeting room, you guys had that done this year too, right? I just want the members to be proud when they come in here. This is their home, and for a long time I don't feel like we invested in our home. And if you don't, it falls apart, and then people don't want to hang out here. I want it to always be welcoming. A woman's touch. (laughs) And my goal for 2022 is just to get the standing committees more involved. Okay. I mean, your standing committees right now are pretty productive. Very. They're the building blocks. Yes, they are extremely. Yeah, their chairpersons are doing a really great job. Yeah, they're all involved in the community. They're better communicators, too, because now the members are like, they want to give you money now. They want to help you with because you're explaining it. And you're energetic about it, and you're getting them excited. About right. Because they know you've helped quite, this local, you know, under your guys. We've helped a lot of people, a lot of communities. And our community service committee during COVID, mm. oh, my God, they wow. served thousands and thousands of right. people, helping so many families. I'm very proud of them. Thank you, Rich. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you guys for having us. <laughs> thank, you, thank, you. thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hello and Happy New Year, Machinist Union members and our allies in the labor movement. Welcome back to a new year of your weekly 141 report. And I'm your host, Dave Lehigh, the communications representative for District Lodge 141. Our conversation topic brings you this week to Dulles International Airport in Virginia, as we have a conversation with three United Airlines Grievance Committee members. Speaking about negotiations, uh, when we had the recent proposals that went out, uh, did you feel that a lot of your members put in proposals? Did I mean, you, what did you guys do to encourage people to get the proposals in? So uh, we went break room to break room, um, which is our normal way of communicating with a lot of people. Put out some emails as well, um, forwarded everything, all the links and stuff that we could, and then just did our best to encourage everybody to get um, involved. And this is their time to speak out and say what they need in this and want in this. Um, we then followed back up, went through and asked people how many did, um, but we believe we got a good turnout. Mm -hmm. Yes. I know Clem, uh, president Clem was really looking for, uh, input from the members, uh, pertaining to language. 
we wanted to strengthen our language. And I'm hopefully that our members were, were going to do that and get that information. And one other thing I want to ask you is, uh, I know that the district came out with a, um, uh, a mobile application with a QR code on there. Did the members find that useful, you believe? I believe that was mixed. The young people actually, I think, did real well with that. Some of us antiques yeah. uh, would prefer the old way. Um, so it was good having it both ways. I think that yeah. made it easier for everybody. Well, this wraps up this year's first 141 report. We'll see you all next week. Bye for now. Welcome to Local 3's 12th podcast, Breaking Ground, where we discuss all things labor, labor history, politics, uh, working family legislation that relates to operating engineers, Local 3, and our members. Today, I'm happy to have with us all the way from Colorado on the old Zoom screen, Christina Terizo, and she's going to discuss the important topic of mental health. Christina, welcome. We're still dealing with the effects of COVID. People have lost loved ones to the illness. They've lost jobs. Children are learning on computer screens. Um, we're just inundated with information and messaging. And I think people feel isolated and confused and they're not just, they're just not sure what to believe in and what the best steps are to stay safe. What is research saying? What we did see early on in the pandemic was that people were staying home and not reaching out for care. So that means a lot of folks who may have needed care or who may have been struggling at the time um, or relapsing uh, related to addiction or a mental health condition, um, we're putting off care for a while. And now what we've seen over the past year and a half is really um, an overwhelming um, demand for mental health care for both those folks who put off care and are showing up sicker um, at our, you know, at our um, departments and clinics, as well as folks who have been trying to manage um, what they've, what we've all been faced with over the past year and a half, we're seeing that even just the assessments that folks are taking out there for anxiety and depression have skyrocketed. People are are trying to understand, um, are they, you know, are they depressed? Um, do they have anxiety? And what, what are the options for them? And so um, what we also know is that while people are exploring this and while there's high demand, there are also folks who will again put off care due to stigma um, or because they're, you know, they, they're not sure, they're not ready. And that can go on for years um, before someone actually reaches out. I think the one positive of COVID is that there's, there's less of a stigma than, are, than there used to be, I think, because most people are dealing with something. But in our industry in general, most of our members are come from the construction industry, which is still very largely male-dominated. A lot of times they're away from their families. They're, they're the sole breadwinner of their household. They're on a job site and everything is about production. And there is an imminent culture of, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm just going to plug through. I've seen research that the construction industry has one of the highest rates of suicide um, of any occupation. And that is a study that was done from the CDC pre-pandemic. 
So um, if we're looking at it along the same lines that we do physical health, you wouldn't ignore um, a pain, a, a, a pain in your, you know, your body that um, is that is causing you to suffer and that is distracting you. If you've been in any chronic pain, you know that it's hard to think about anything else. And so listening to that pain and and bringing your awareness to how what you're experiencing is such a um, it's a huge part of it. And being able to talk about this in the work environment is is really part of the key to to allowing that psychological safety to open up a little bit more. I think, like I said, that the stigma is shifting, but it really should be viewed no different as, oh, I broke my leg. I'm going to go get a cast oh, I'm having a mental health issue, I'm going to go talk to a doctor, or I'm going to look at the resources that are available to me. It's important to be part of a union because you have to have a voice. Welcome to Union Talk. I'm Randy Weingarten. And today, we're talking about how an ideological movement here, the right wing, has used a phrase to try and drive a wedge between parents and educators and schools. And what I'm talking about is the phrase critical race theory. So I can't wait to talk to two experts and share them with you. First is Dr. Marsha Shatlan, who is a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And our second guest is Peter Levine, who is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and the Lincoln Filing Professor of Citizenship and Public Affairs in Tufts University's Jonathan Tisch College of Civic Life. My question is, what kind of strategies do either of you think we should be employing or using to recreate a community again between parents and teachers? I think parents need to have a time out. I think that having spent the year having to probably be more engaged in their children's education than they usually have to just by virtue of COVID, they should have walked out of this moment with a great deal of respect and of gratitude for teachers. But instead, you see this kind of stuff. I actually don't have a response to this because I'm so upset about it. <laughs> but I guess the rebuilding of the trust is that teachers, for their part, need to learn how to communicate to parents the long game of their children's education that we are right. teaching them these difficult topics so that they are better at these very concrete things in the world. We are engaging these conversations because we don't want our schools to be places of harm. Like, I think that some of the the kind of bare bones, why we do things in schools and why we teach what we teach, I think sometimes we lose that in the education process, in the day-to-day -day of meeting standards and meeting expectations. I think that reflective part of it has to be part of the conversation with parents and teachers. If you look at Battlepedia, a website that follows politics and elections, they identified 275 school board candidates who took conservative stances or these kind of ideological stances on race, gender, and pandemic issues. And about 25%, 28% of those candidates won those races. So there's lots of people all across the country who actually want schools to be welcoming and safe understand we've gone through a really tough time, have a lot of respect for their kids' teachers, and we don't want them to feel alone, but we want to build on 
that kind of sense of community and trying to figure out what to do. And I thought what you just said about the kind of reflection at the beginning of a school year, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And having those kind of conversations with parents, I think would probably go a long way and making sure that people were had a sense of that long game. Peter, what do you think? Yeah, I don't want I don't want to romanticize the past because um, it was worse in many ways. But we, I think, we have lost some set of traditions and even institutions that allowed parents and other community members to be involved in schools. We, there are a lot of things. I, I think the late great Eleanor Rose from um, Economist uh, calculated that less than a third as many people are involved in actually being on school boards as they were in the mid 20th century because of consolidation of schools, but also the mechanisms of for things like public engagement are terrible. So often it's the, the school board up at the front of the room behind microphones and everybody gets a turn to talk for 30 seconds. And these are lousy methods. Also, PTA membership is down. Other kinds of engagement are down. What's behind my thought is that I'm most worried about the person who's sitting there listening to media and forming opinions and just expressing the opinions. And I'm less worried about the person who actually has to take responsibility for managing something with other people. I think that's a form of that, that brings the real world to your doorstep when you are part of a group that actually has to manage things. And a lot fewer Americans are. We did a survey in which we found that less than 20% of Americans felt that they were part of any group that had real self-governance, where they were involved in the self-governance. And I believe those numbers have gone down in the you know 20th and 21st century. So I guess I'm, I'm always at risk of sounding Pollyanna and or nostalgic, and I don't really want to be, but I do still believe that when you get people together to actually make consequential decisions, and they have to do so with people who are differently situated from them, so parents and teachers, or certainly people who are diverse demographically, that they get better at it through practice. And certainly if they're not ever doing that, they get worse at it through practice. And, and it's very easy to sit there saying the schools are my enemy if you don't have to be responsible for actually making tough decisions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Chatlin, and thank you, Professor Levine, for this incredibly important and, frankly, raw conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Union Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and tune in every other week for a new episode. Thank you. Be safe and be well. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. I'm Judy Ansel. On tonight's show, racism in politics and in our policy making is why all of us can't have nice things. So says Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather McGee was in Kansas City in November and had a conversation with stand-up KC's Terrence Wise and Bridget Hughes. Tonight, we're going to bring you excerpts from that conversation. So, Sister Heather, I have a question for you. And the question is simple, but it is thought-provoking. And that is, why can't we have nice things? <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much, Reverend Rodney. Why can't we have nice things? You know, that's that's the opening line to the sum of us. You know, I I I, I worked for nearly twenty years uh, 
in economic policy, trying to use research and st statistics and data to spot problems in the American economy and 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 take that and craft evidence-based solutions and bring them to policymakers and say, look, look, 40% of American workers are paid too little to meet their basic needs for things like housing and food. Look, you know? 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class. Look, there's a solution here. There's a solution here. This is not the weather. This is a policy choice, and we can make different choices. And yet, even though we had some victories, obviously the fight for 15 in dozens of states across the country is one of the sterling examples of being able to move policy that has changed lives, even in the midst of the inequality era. It has been clear that there are headwinds that we have faced, and we didn't know how to name them. And so when I say, why can't we have nice things, Reverend Romney, I, I don't mean things like self-driving cars and, you know, drive-through espresso. That's nice, but that's not what I'm talking about, right? We're, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about nice things like childcare. We're talking about nice things like wages that keep workers out of poverty. We're talking about nice things like universal, guaranteed, affordable health care for every single person, cradle to grave. We are talking about nice things like a well-funded school in every neighborhood, reliable modern infrastructure, pipes that don't leach lead into our babies. We are talking about the things that should be within our grasp in one of the wealthiest nations on earth that prides itself as being the home of the American dream. And I set out on a journey four years ago across this country and talked to hundreds of people in order to try to get a better answer to that question than the one I'd been fed. And what I discovered is that, in short, racism in our politics and in our policymaking is why all of us can't have nice things. And by the we who can't have nice things, I mean the white folks who are the largest share of the impoverished and the uninsured, and I mean the folks of color who are disproportionately so. And what really it all comes down to is an unwillingness by folks who have been taught, and that's the key, who have been taught to not believe that their neighbor is truly their brother and sister, to think that the enemy is right there down the block, or is on the next cashier down, cash register down, or is competing for a spot in a school, or is competing for a promotion, when in fact, the enemy are the people who are rigging those rules in the first place. And the only ones who are getting wealthier and wealthier, no matter which way the wheel turns, and are asking us to punch down. And that story is as old as time. That story is the story of the zero sum, of the lie that says that progress for some has to come at the expense of others. And that if I get a dollar in my pocket, that must mean a dollar less in yours. And we know that that zero sum lie is being sold for profit 
day in and day out by the political and economic elites who are benefiting from the status quo. And we know that what they want is to keep the rules rigged enough so that there are more and more people who are desperate enough to buy that lie. But we also know that ultimately that lie came from the original sin of this country. It was a lie created by the colonial plantation elite to justify the economic model of stolen people, stolen land, and stolen labor. And it was a lie that said to European indentured servants who were starting to take up arms with African enslaved and indigenous enslaved people and rise up against the colonial plantation elite in the 17th century. And what the white ruling class did to break those bonds of solidarity before our nation was even a nation was to create the lie, the lie of human hierarchy, the lie that says that some groups of people are better than others. And it said to the masses of soon-to-be white people, because they weren't even white then, side with your color instead of your class. We will give you these crumbs if you defend this broken system. We will give you just enough privileges to make you feel like you can be one of us. And that has been the most powerful tool that the ruling class has used against workers generation after generation after generation. You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back too. Send us your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborforumkkfi at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming schedule, is heartlandlaborforum.org. Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. This episode draws on New Labor Forum's cutting-edge books and the arts section in today's podcast. The book in question is Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism by Heather Berg. Interviewer Whitney Strube discusses with Berg her insights into work and workers in the $12 billion porn industry. I'll start with a quote from one of my interviewees, and that is Nina Hartley, an industry veteran, who puts it simply, a scene feels different than it looks, a sense that a scene does feel different than it looks, that that watching a scene, that paying attention to its representational norms won't tell us much about what it feels like to make it. So that's, I think, part of it. And the other piece is that, that, that I am writing against in a more direct way is a, a tendency that sometimes emerges in the field to imagine that good aesthetics mean good working conditions. So that often consolates around class markers. So bad porn becomes plastic, artificial, fake tans, fake boobs. Good porn becomes, you know, artisanal, organic, and so on. And the inverse also becomes true. So 
porn imagined to be bad, like low budget, gonzo, rough sex is assumed to be a worse kind of work. But sometimes artisanal porn, like nonprofit work, uh, for example, has worse working conditions. And sometimes a low budget set makes better pay. And the director, you know, not fancying themselves an auteur, lets you come in, do the job and go home, which matters to a lot of working people. You know, the very opening line of the book Every porn scene is a record of people at work. It really throws down the gauntlet, I think, in terms of, you know, the kind of intervention and, and also interpretive lens that you're taking here. And so the other question then, alongside your intervention into porn studies, is sort of your intervention into labor studies. Because I think you also make a pretty compelling case here that both labor studies in the academy and also the labor movement outside of the academy have not been all that responsive to or inclusive of both porn work and, and sex work more broadly. My argument isn't that that porn work should be included or subsumed into the frameworks already available in the mainstream labor movement or in kind of mainline labor studies, um, but rather that doing so will really shift the terrain. And I think in ways that make both more responsive to the conditions of this political moment. But yeah, those exclusions matter. We're working in the context of decades of pointed exclusions from the mainstream labor movement, most notably the Screen Actors Guild, which has repeatedly told porn workers that they're not welcome. And we can imagine all of the, the costs to working conditions that, that have come from that. But also I'm, I'm concerned with the more general kind of disdain for sex workers on the part of much of the labor movement and the labor left more broadly. I think there's a lot going on there in some of the ways that, that the labor left has held on to its attachments to bourgeois morality and the, the nuclear family and the idea that, that good sex is unpaid and good work is productive. But I, I really do think that the labor movement should listen to porn workers, again, not just as a matter of inclusion, but really because they've been navigating the conditions that the labor movement is now scrambling to respond to for decades. So the kinds of conditions of precarization, of gigification, the kind of dissolving boundary between life and work, but also what it means to deal with a state that wants you dead, I think are conditions that, that porn and other sex workers have been navigating around for a really long time. And so if, if there's one thing, I think, to take from that is to what would it mean to, to do labor organizing, knowing that the state is no ally. Um, I think more and more of us can, can learn from that in this moment. We confronted evil for a while. We don't say, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you anymore, at least so anyone can hear. Well, the evil things that made me angry then still make me angry now. I keep asking around, does anything make you angry too? Does anything make anyone angry? Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Art and Labor. I am OK Fox, joined with my um, beautiful, perfect co-hosts, Lucia Love and Sarah Crow. Hey, guys. You guys. <laughs> hey, what's up? And we have um, two returning champions, um, Friends of the podcast, wish we were in person. We are on the internet with David Turner and Liz Ryerson. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having <laughs> me on again. Yeah, excited to be back. back. Excited to be back. Um, I wish yeah. that we pretended that we were in the Nurekin Poet Cafe, though. <laughs> like, just, just what, to give that? a vibe. I could, like, play a YouTube video of cafe it's sounds. Like, I want to go back. Yeah, it's like where people do their live 
poetry reading. I'm going to keep like... doing a fucking poetry reading before every episode, so everyone's just gonna have to get used to it and start doing. <laughs> oh, their own. okay. So we're trying to we're trying to set the vibe here. Yeah, oh. that's what I just wanted to set the scene like, uh, but about boop cha, snap, snap, snaps. Everybody, I gotta say, 2022. I'm going full sincerity. I'm ready. I like like Holly like Holly Herndon who tweeted I think like earlier this month who was like. What if there was a Dow to like, I think she too does something like if there was a Dow to like help insulin prices or something. And I was just like, wait, I need I you to like explain Dow's to me. I'm sorry. Okay, David, yeah. you got to explain to the class because like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm rolling my eyes really hard. So um, Dow stands for decentralized autonomous organization. And like what a Dow is, is basically, I think it's been like colloquially, I think as some folks describe it as something like a group tech of a bank account which I would just describe as like money laundering <laughs> by a different name. Um, and there are like a number of different DAOs. I think like the most, the biggest one was like the Constitution DAO, where there are a bunch of nerds who are like, we're going to buy a copy of the Constitution. And so they raise like $40 million or something, like like um, ETH or um, Ethereum. And so they tried to buy a copy of the Constitution on like a, like I think like an like a auction. And they end up getting beaten by some hedge fund guy who like paid like almost fifty million for it. Which honestly, like, shouts out to him. Like, I, it's <laughs> rare where I'm rooting for hedge funds, but it's like hedge fund I, crypto guys. Mm, I'm going with the hedge fund on this one. It's like I don't know if he made his money. I assume bad things, but I know that I don't like the other thing. I know that for sure. <laughs> um, but so DAOs are pretty like vague and ephemeral. Like, there's a thing. I I read a story in the Financial Times the other day where they tried to cover DAOs. And like, I just want to say, it's hard to hear on the Financial Times paywall, but if you can, like all of their stories about cryptocurrencies are so funny because they're so skeptical and almost immediately they're like, is this legal? Like almost every time the Financial Times or Bloomberg or any financial press covers NFTs or crypto stuff, it's like, this doesn't seem legal. This probably isn't legal, but I guess these kids are having fun with it, but it's probably not legal. And it's, like, really funny to me because I'm, like, okay, like, again, I don't want to say, like, I love banks. I love capital <laughs> and, like, literally capital. It's, like, I don't. But it's just, like, yeah, like, if, like, the financial press is, like, this seems like nonsense and it's probably money laundering and most likely illegal. <sighs> I feel like that says a little bit of something, even though a lot of crypto people get annoyed. Like, when, like, so I guess I only okay, I will say I only care about crypto because it's infested in music a lot recently. It's gotten really big into music. Otherwise, I wouldn't give a shit. I wouldn't really think about most of this stuff. But because it's gotten really deep in music, I'm like, I have to not care about this. And like, I've gotten this spiel from people who are like, well, do you like the banks? And it's like, no. no. Yeah. But do I trust you? Absolutely not. Like, <laughs> these are like regulated by occasionally governments occasionally not all the time but like they at least have some masters that have to they have to pay up to you're just moving money around on the internet that is not at all regulated i'm like yeah I don't wanna, like it you. shouldn't be an either or thing right. too no. it shouldn't just be like oh well uh, you don't like crypto so you like banks so you suck it's like no 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 like because this stuff isn't regulated like the I forget who the guys are that were like um, Ethereum, like billionaires or whatever that actually bought like the Beeple right. art at auction. Like Shanghai, you know, yeah, they're just yeah. doing 
like insane inside trading where yeah. they're like, oh, okay, so if we buy this thing and then like, you know, have it be connected to this currency that we made and like our hedge fund just transfers money into, then we can sell this crypto and then like I think, you know, profit whatever it was like insane amounts, like seven hundred percent off of a sale. Like it's no, my yeah, my thing yeah. with, that, with with that sale. It wasn't Shanghai. It was like, it was like Bangkok. It was like some place that was like very like well known for being like a a, a place for like a lot of illegal fucked up sex trade stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, where do you think that money's going? On the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here for our summer series, our history series. And it's been great fun to sort of delve into the history of the labour movement in Australia, our workers' movements, because there's so many great characters and so many great stories that haven't been told or have been forgotten. We're going to bring you plenty of them with our very own Dr. Liam Byrne. He's a historical oracle, and he joins us again on the podcast today. G'day, Francis. How, How are you, Dr. Liam? Excellent, mate. Great to be here with you again. Uh, thank you for coming in. Well, let's uh, correct the record a little bit and start with an incident in 1969. And it's a famous story in union circles about a woman who chained herself to the doors of a building holding a sign that basically kicked up a firestorm about gender rights, pay equity, and issues we're still fighting about today. And her name was Zelda Daprano. Tell us about Zelda. Well, Zelda is one of the most incredible union uh, activists of the 20th century all time. She was born in um, Carlton uh, in Melbourne and grew up in working class, a uh, very working class suburb. And she was born in the late 1920s. She entered the workforce when she was uh, 14, like many working class people did. And she began to enter the workforce and to lose a lot of jobs very quickly because she went into a lot of Melbourne factories, like a lot of other working class women at the time, and absolutely refused to put up with the indignities and the terrible work conditions. So she kicked up a stink and met recrimination from employers very, very quickly because of that. So she was a rabble rouser and a rebel from a very, very early age. She got political and joined the Communist Party. She became uh, a qualified dental nurse um, and was a very, very strong unionist. And, you know, there is a long history of union women um, tackling sexism within the workplace, within society, but also within the movement itself. Um, and, you know, Zelda very much stood on their shoulders, but also herself had an incredible legacy that uh, she sort of led. And it's one of the reasons why she became so well-known and the reason she became so well-loved in the movement, particularly by working class women, but uh, more broadly as well, was because she wasn't willing to just accept it. She wanted a better world. She was willing to campaign for it. She was willing to fight for it. And she did what she thought was necessary. Okay. So take us to 1969. What did she do? So Zelda, by this point, was working for the Meat Workers Union. Uh, and the Meat Workers was one of two unions which took a case for equal pay to the Arbitration Commission in 1969 in June. So Zelda was there every day. The uh, case was argued for by the Australian Council of Trade Unions and its advocate, who may may not be aware for uh, one of the, the last times, was Bob Hawke. And Zelda uh, sort of speaks in her memoirs about how terrible it was as a, a woman worker to be sitting in this commission day in, day out, and you would hear four male judges running events and then the male advocate for the ACTU and then the male lawyers for the employers sitting there debating the rights of working women while working women were sitting in the stands silently. The result of this case was a, a very, very small step forward and it led to equal pay for women who did the exact same type of work in the exact same industries as men. However, that was only about 18% of the workforce because one of the things that's happened um, in the Australian economy is that large sections of industries which are dominated by women have been systematically undervalued because of sexism. But Zelda was 
desperately afraid that after this decision that people were just going to say, all right, well, job done. We've got some form of equal pay. We can put that issue away. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And she was saying, no, this is still a major issue for all the rest of the women who haven't got equal pay. So what she decided to do was to make a stand and to kick up a stink about this. So she had a chain that was donated by the uh, painters and dockers union, but she had to go buy the locks herself. She went down to the Commonwealth building, which was where a number of the Commonwealth government officers were, and she chained herself to the front of the building while other women protesters marched up and down with placards trying to kick up a stink and cause attention. And the reason for this was it was to make the point that equal pay wasn't a reality. Even though you had a case with some small positives and that was great, it still wasn't fully there and they were going to keep the campaign going. And so it's really important to capture that public attention and also attention within the movement to say this issue is not going away until it's actually you know, we actually have equality. Actually, she did two protests of a very similar nature because it was popular enough and it got enough attention that two members of the teachers union got in contact with Zelda and said, this is wonderful. We want to help out. Uh, We want to do the same. So actually 10 days later, they went down to the arbitration commission uh, building, which was in Little Burke Street uh, here in Melbourne. Go visit if you want, 451 Little Burke Street, different building now, but you can see the place. And they did the exact same protest again. They chained themselves to the Arbitration Commission building. So that was a really, really amazing thing that she did not too long after this. But So the, the rate for women was set at 75% of the male rate for most women. Her and a fellow activist um, a couple of years later had this major protest on trams in Melbourne. But what they did was just back in the days where they used to have conductors, was they'd go sit on the tram and when the conductors came to ask them to pay for a ticket, they would pay 75% of the ticket. Genius. And when the instructor said, oh, that's not the price, I said, well, this is what women earn. So again, all these little moments, which you know, taken together, they're all about making sure that women's real lived experience are actually shown. Another great union history moment with our historical oracle, Dr. Liam Byrne. And Dr. Liam, we'll uh, catch up with you again next week on the job. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.